Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Annette Lantos Tilleman Dick. I forgot one of my names. <laughs> I'm Gloriana Tilleman Dick. And Gloriana, we're so happy to have you with us again this yep. week. It's just so fun to have you back. And, um, you know, I just love to have this mother-daughter thing on, especially you're on the same sofa, you're <laughs> giving hugs. It's wonderful. It's great. Well, today we're going to be talking about the parables, and I'm just so excited to be talking about that. But before we get into the parables themselves, I want to talk a little bit about how we have to prepare ourselves to understand these parables. A matter of fact, it was fascinating to me to be able to see that there's an interesting story that's hooked in with the parables. And that's this story that sometimes we find a little disconcerting in that uh, the Savior's mother is coming and, and his, some of his other brethren, and they come to, to talk to him and realize he's in a house full of people that are listening to him. And so his answer, he stretches forth his hand towards his disciples who are listening and says, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. And it's fascinating to me sometimes because we have these chapters that just kind of stop the story and realize when it was written, there were no chapters, there were no verses, it was just one story. So that is the last two verses of Matthew 12. But if you go to, if you just forget that the next one is a chapter, it says the very first you know, line, the same day. So realize that story happened on the same day that the Savior's going to be telling all of these parables. The other interesting thing that we kind of have a second witness that that story also goes with the beginning of these parables is that in the Luke version, in Luke 8, basically that story of you know his mother and people coming to him happens after he tells the story of the sower, and then it puts in that story, and then he goes on teaching other parables. So for me, that's fascinating to think that really what he's trying to teach us is if we do his will, we become his brothers, sisters, his mother, part of his family, and that as we become part of his family, we will listen and learn from him as well. Yeah, we were actually, we were speaking about this in the car on the way over, um, because I think there is an interesting tension in the church, because Jesus, we have such a family-centered church with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and I love that about our church. It's something I do that too. really resonates with me about the church, and um, I love my family. I'm excited about starting my a new family one day. Um, but I do think you look at you look at Christ's life, and he often had sort of surprising things to say about families, um, things that that don't fit into this very neat story we tell in the church about the family being the center of um, sort of our own. Uh, spiritual journey, which on one hand, I really agree with, but I think Jesus, as always, he stretches us, he forces he us to us. to confront things in a different way. And I think, um, especially speaking uh, 
I have, I have lots of friends who they don't have that traditional family structure right. yet, or they may never have that family structure. And I do think it's it's somewhere where maybe they they are a little more plugged in to, to Christ's perspective on these things than than we're disposed to be with, with the church's traditional line on on family issues, which isn't to say that families are bad. And I do think that they are our first opportunity to practice Christ-like behaviors, right? Definitely. But I also think that Jesus is such a good reminder that you can you can have found family, you can have family structures that don't look exactly like all of the cartoons and pictures of families might look. And that's something that, especially as I recently got married, but I was a, a single member of the church for a long time, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to remember that... As far as we know, Christ operated a lot like a, a single person. And he it's not that he didn't have family, but he had a different perspective on what a family could be. And I think that, again, it's something that challenges us a little bit, but in, in a good way. And it's a way that forces us to open up our, our understanding of how, how we live our own lives as well as how others live theirs and get close to Christ. Oh, I agree. And Annette, you and I, though, had very traditional families and big, and big families. families. <laughs> yeah. So what is your thought on that? Well, I think, you know, it is maybe particularly for us to think because um, one of the wonderful things about focusing on your families is you have lots of responsibilities towards them. You want to do fun things with them. You want to celebrate them. It takes a lot of time. And we have, we run the risk of becoming a little bit tribal in that. You know, I I remember talking when I was young, very young. We just moved to Denver and there was a young couple who had been living in Utah. I said, oh, that must have been so wonderful all. I had never lived near other members of the church, really. And they'd always been very dispersed. Um, maybe in California, but I didn't really live in California that much at that point after I joined the church. And um, she said, well, you know, in Utah, everybody has their family. And if you're not in their family, you're a little bit on the outside. I remember, I remember just feeling like, no, you know, it just hurt my heart to think that people weren't welcoming everyone into their families like family because we are family. And I think that this this response of the Savior, when they say, oh, your mom and your brother's outside, said, who are my mother, my sister, my brother, those who listen to what I'm saying, those who are following the teachings that I'm giving them? It, It is a little bit of a cautionary reminder to us that it is important that we treat all of those around us as really brothers and sisters, and we not draw those hard and fast lines. Well, and I love along with that is the inclusion of it, kind of going with what Gloriana was saying, that instead it it opens up our family. I mean, That's then everybody right. who is doing the will of of God becomes a part of my family. They exactly. are my brothers it's, and sisters. It's not advising you to treat your family worse. No. It's advising no. you to treat others better exactly. because you want to think of them like they're your family. And exactly. to welcome them in to this great family circle of brothers and sisters. Yeah, we don't just call call each other brother and sister. It should be how we feel about each other. Exactly. About and, everyone. Yeah. And that's, I love that because then they become our brothers and sisters. They're just, I, we lived a lot of our, our lives 
away from family. I mean, most of the time I was raising my children, we didn't live near family. And so basically what the people that became our family were oftentimes our ward family and our neighbors and the people around us because we didn't live by my brothers and sisters and my parents and or my um, husband's parents. And so I do think that my children did have that experience of feeling like their, you know, their family was much larger than just their relatives because of that. Yes, I think my kids definitely had that experience. <laughs> we were very, very inclusive. But I also, I also think, you know, that it is important for us as we sit in the world with non-judgment to understand Jesus was Jehovah. He was the creator. So in fact, all of the people were his children. Oh, definitely. And his his children as well as his brothers and sisters. And that we are called to look at every person we see in that way. My father loved a story told by a rabbi. Noni, if I say it wrong, you'll have to stop me because I'm bad at telling stories. But <laughs> the rabbi was there and he was surrounded by his students. And they said, he said, I want to ask you a question. How will we know that it's day? How do we know when the day has dawned? And one of them says, um, when I'm walking on the road and I can see that an animal is a, a dog and not a cow. And another says, when I look out, far, when I'm far away and I can look out and I see the outlines of our village. And the rabbi says, mm, yeah, no. No. <laughs> and finally, he says, when I walk and I see another person and I recognize he is my brother or sister, oh, that is when I'll know that the day has come. And I think that is what the Savior here wants us to do, to recognize. Oh, what a beautiful story. As a matter of fact, that goes right along with what the Lord yeah. continues to talk about. Because after giving the parable of the sower... And, and it also is in Luke as well. When he starts saying, you know, after he's given this story, and we're going to be talking about it in just a minute, but the disciples come up and say, well, why are you speaking in parables? We don't get it. We don't understand. And then the Lord goes through this amazing discussion about this idea of what it truly means to hear and to see. And he says very specifically, he says, he answered them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And then going to verse 16, he talks to them and he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And then he goes and says, hear ye therefore the parables, and he discusses with them what they mean. Now, I love that idea of do we really hear and do we really see the words of the Lord? Do we have that heart that enables us to hear? Or do we have the hardened heart like the Savior talks a lot about the Pharisees and scribes, the fact that they weren't able to hear or see is because of their hardened hearts. I wanted to reference um, Elder Runland gave a beautiful talk in, in October 2009 
about this mighty change of heart. And he talked specifically about um, the fact in 1967 was the first heart transplant, and there's been over 75,000 transplants since then. But he makes the comment that, can you imagine how it would feel to have an actual new heart placed inside of you? And then he goes and says, sometimes, though, people, they have to work after getting this new heart. They have to take medicine. I mean, I know you know you have to take medicine. You have to take care of yourself. You have to take extra special care. And if you don't, then your body's going to reject. You know, it's going to go hard and, and cold, right, instead of the softened, warm heart. And he said, just as with heart transplant patients, however, this mighty change of our spiritual hearts is just the beginning. We have to keep on working on it or that heart's not going to stay there. Enduring to the end can be challenging because the tendency of the natural man is to reject the spiritually changed heart and allow it to harden. And then he goes on and talks about how we have to work at making sure that that changed heart, that opportunity to have a softened heart so that we're able to be open to these parables and these words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that if we don't, that hardened heart might start you know, happening again and we might have a problem. You know, I have to bring this up. I taught seminary a while ago. It was quite a while ago. I think it was before Gloriana was yeah. born. And um, I was teaching it in California. We were in there, we were in California for a while. And we were studying the parables. We were studying the New Testament. And one of my students, who happens to be the son of Elder Cook, um, Larry, we gave them an I gave them an assignment that they needed to write their own parables. And I was impressed because, you know, those poor kids so early in the morning, but they came back the next day with a bunch of parables. But I'll never forget Larry Cook's parable. He liked baseball, and he was a good baseball player. It was the parable of the baseball practice. And he said, you know, sometimes your batting average is just going down, and what do you need to do? You need to go back and do the things. You need to go and do batting practice, and you need to just go and do it, and you need to do all the things they told you to do. And if you do it, it comes back up. And it was a parable, you know, what, what was it a parable for? Noni, do you have ears to hear? Scripture study. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, and other things, but that's right. <laughs> and, um, and, and he said, you know, when his testimony, he feels it flagging or his, just his enthusiasm for living the gospel, he realizes he needs to go back with real enthusiasm read the scriptures, go to church and listen and try to see what's there for him. But it, there's kind of a routine he has to go through to get it back in shape. I thought it was a pretty I love good that. parable. It is a, a very good parable. 15-year-old kid, you know. Well, and I love the words that Elder Renlin uses because for me, that also kind of gives me more energy. He says, to endure to the end, we need to be eager to please God and worship him with fervor and passion. And I love those, you know, eager, fervor, passion. That's not just laying back and let it happen to us. It's, it's being very much a part of making sure this is a part of our lives, that we are working at it, just like he was describing as well. And I will just testify that it is reciprocated. When we approach it with passion, we feel the passionate love of our Savior and the Lord for us. Oh, I think we so, too. We feel it in the ways that he that we receive a response from the scriptures, from the spirit in other ways. 
And I, I do think what I really appreciate about the parable is it is inherently cooperative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a lecture. It's not just saying this, 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 and this. It is inviting the listener to understand, to really use their experiences and their their wisdom that they have to f- understand the meaning that is inherent in that story. Um, and I think, you know, I think reading li- literature is a really good practice for understanding parables better, but I, I, I appreciate that that was something Christ valued, was, was the insights that people would bring to his stories. He, he, I mean, the sower is a, a unique instance because he does go through and explain it, which right. I think is fascinating. I love that. But he doesn't explain the other ones. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he and leaves those for us to understand. Exactly. And, and you, my mom, me, we're probably all going to have slightly different understandings exactly. of each of those. And he's not saying those are wrong. He's choosing to teach in that way so that we are able to understand it in a way that makes it meaningful for us. And I love the fact that, uh, I mean, I know, Gloriana, you've been a missionary. And during that experience of teaching people the gospel who are new to the gospel, and most of these people, of course, were new to the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Savior is teaching it to them. And so because of that, oftentimes it is difficult for them to understand the scriptures. It is difficult for them to say, you know, why are the scriptures so difficult to understand? I'm sure you heard yeah, well, people we say would, that. We would make up parables all the time to help us teach. I, I, I think they're an incredibly useful skill to just help someone transpose the words here to their lives. And, it, you know, they aren't, you, do, you can tell parables about, kings and princes and princesses, but I found the most useful ones in in my teaching were the ones that involved really simple everyday things like a flashlight or a car or things like that, that people said, I know what I use that thing for. I know what it accomplishes in my life. And if I'm able to get that same, not necessarily the same sort of utility, but utility that is as useful as that, you know, everyday object or that everyday situation, that's really valuable to me. And it's something worth pursuing further. I love that because I do think that what the Lord is saying here is that this isn't hard. Yeah. But what it is, is that you have to have your heart in it. Or you can say, oh, you can make the comment, no, I can't understand it. It's too hard. It's it's too difficult. Yeah, it's either a story about farming or it's a exactly. deep spiritual insight. <laughs> exactly. And this reminds me a lot when we were on our mission, we would uh, teach this wonderful scripture in Doctrine and Covenants 29.7, and I think most missionaries would be very familiar with it. And ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect, for mine elect hear my voice and harden not their hearts. And I think that's kind of what the Savior was saying, that when I'm giving you these parables for you to find meaning, spiritual meaning, meaning that will help you in your life, but you have to have that soft heart, that willingness to rely on the Spirit to help teach you and help you understand. And as you do, you will learn. You will be gathered in as my elect. Yeah, and I think there's there's it's there are two sides to it, right? There's a meekness to to sort of receive understanding. And there's a confidence to say, now that I've received this understanding, I think that's valid. I don't think, you know, I have to hear it from someone else for it to be valuable to me. I think that I can create this meaning with Christ's words. 
And that's what I'm supposed to be getting out of it. There's, you know, there are two sides to that interpretation process. And, and the one piece I'd like to add here is that when we have received it, go and tell our brethren. And the important thing to remember, and I, I read this, um, I think it was Joseph Fielding Smith, Smith or Joseph F. Smith who said in the conference talk, we have a responsibility to share. And share means to love our neighbor and to seek to share with them what we have understood to be life-changing. Oh, infer- I agree. Um, um, information. And we do not have the responsibility to make them accept it. Mm-hmm. And we do have the responsibility to continue loving them. Mm-hmm. But it is liberating to understand we just share it. We share it with love. We share it with as much inspiration and and guidance as we can to to share in a meaningful way the wonderful words and teachings of the Savior. And then it's, a, a, you it's know, some will fall on the so- way, in the wayside, exactly. some will fall on a rock, some will be choked by weeds, and some will fall into fertile fields, you know. And that's what the parable of the sower is all exactly. about. And so do you want to continue well, teaching us about the parable of the sower? Because I, I, I love this story. I, well, what I love it. And what made me smile as I was reading it with this intent was remembering the first time I heard it, which is my mother read it to us in, from the Bible stories. Um, and I didn't get it at all. <laughs> I thought, whoa, I am definitely one. I, and I was glad that in a later chapter, Jesus explained what it meant, you know, when, mm-hmm. um, in, in our little Bible stories that we read, because I thought, hmm, now what is that about? I thought it was about gardening. I totally thought it was about gardening. And it is an important lesson for gardeners. And I will confess that I am one who, as a lazy gardener who has been gardening, though, for a long time, was very inclined to say, okay, we have the dirt, we have the seeds, we have the plants, let's just put them in, water them, and let get, let's get going. And, you know, all this discussion, if you have to amend the soil, you have to right. add this, and you have to add that. I was like, oh, it's just dirt, you know? Do we really have to do that? Yes, you do. I can say from many good gardens and many not-so-great gardens <laughs> that it makes a lot of difference the kind of way you prepare the soil for a garden and for seeds. And of course, in this wonderful um, parable that is found in both Luke and in Matthew, Mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting subject, we aren't going to go there right now about the synoptic gospels and their sources, but it is an interesting thing that maybe we'll touch on another time. Um, We, this great parable where there's a multitude of people and he spake many things to them saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they had sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. So they came up quickly, and when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. I'm going to stop for a moment, because this is one of my favorite stories 
that I ever read in the ensign. And it was in, when we didn't have the viajona. We had the ensign. Right. And in the back, there were some stories that were little short stories that people had sent in. And this was during the era of our early gardens when we didn't live, Gloriana, where you were born, but we lived in the house before and we had a strip and we were determined we were going to make it into a garden because we were faithful. Oh, good. <laughs> that, good. That's what motivated us <laughs> in those days. And um, part of it was corn. And I was really not very experienced in gardening at that point. And um, I read this story in the ensign. A young man said that his father had his job, they had a big garden every year, his father, and his job was to water the garden. And his father told him, water everything, but don't water the corn. And he was like, okay. And he went out and he said, the corn was looking pretty bad. Yeah. He said, dad, should I water it? And I said, no, don't water the corn. And I mean, this was fascinating to me as a young novice gardener. Right. It's like, what? You know, don't, <laughs> don't water, water the, the corn. <laughs> and, um, said that finally, when the corn was looking pretty bad, his dad said, okay, now start watering the corn. And his father explained to him that with corn, it was going to be this tall stalk and these heavy heads. And if you watered the corn too much, the roots didn't go deep enough to support that stalk. And oh, so he, the corn was in a place where if its roots went deep there, it would find water. But it was important that the roots go deep so it could support the corn stalk eventually. His, this story was about our own lives where sometimes we feel we aren't getting the water we need from the Lord. And oftentimes he designs circumstances. I know there have been long periods in my life where I felt I wasn't getting the water I needed. I, I just, I needed a little more, a little more refreshment. Sure, sure. But the roots go deep. And then when the challenges and the demands of life come, those roots can support what the heavy burdens, the burdens that, that you receive and, and you water it then mm -hmm. and give it the support that it needs from water too. I, that was a wonderful story for me. I think that it, it taught me a lot, not only about gardening, which it did, but definitely about life itself. And I loved it. So, so when, so in these places where the the seeds spring up suddenly, and the roots are not deep enough, mm -hmm. um, the sun came up and they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Um, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But so you know they grew, but there were things around them that choked them out. Um, but others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So the disciples came to him, and you know, they're like, okay, I don't get it. What does this mean? <laughs> Did that make me feel a little better? Because I know when I, I just really tried to understand the agricultural message here. Mm -hmm. And um, he, the Savior goes on to explain to his disciples, which is interesting to me, that they don't get it. You know, part of me thinks that the disciples should have understood what he was talking about. But um, he explained that sometimes seed just falls by the wayside right. and it's taken away by other things. And I think we, we can see that in our lives and, and in people we love and know where there are just 
the seed is the ground is not prepared, the seed is there, and it's just it it just doesn't bear fruit at all. It it is whisked away. And um then in others, it does spring up. And I've had that experience in my life where someone hears the gospel message and thinks, This is fantastic. I love oh, it. Oh, definitely. And it springs up, but the soil hasn't been prepared. I mean, their lives haven't been prepared. They still are very much a part of another world. And it doesn't, they aren't, I mean, probably for us as members of the church, we need to understand how important it is that we create an environment where those seeds of the gospel, which have been embraced, and maybe people have been baptized and they come to church, that we make an effort for them to feel like there is a safe place for that to grow. Well, I know, Gloriana, you were in Mongolia on your mission. I am sure you experienced that many times. Oh, yeah. It was was a wonderful community. And you had, it was, you know, about kind of the rule of thirds. A third of the members were super active. A third came sometimes. They Mm -hmm. didn't come sometimes. And a third nobody knew where they were but it was even even for those members who were less um active in in church activities i think they still found the community incredibly valuable which i I really admired it was it was a community that really was keeping that soil healthy and well so that when when that little seed did germinate again it was there was a place for it to be and i i i think that was something that was very inspiring for me to see how that community welcomed people regardless of their level of, of involvedness themselves. They always made it a welcome spot for people to, to sprout, um, which I thought was wonderful. Um, but also, I think um, part of what is great about parables is they can be applied on so many different levels. Uh, the uh, thing about the seed sprouting and then and then getting scorched it it reminds me of another parable that um we heard in uh was shared in uh our ward in washington dc uh by um the bishop's wife who's just a really really awesome lady she's very cool um and she uh she likened her testimony um to a tupperware uh, (laughs) which i thought was wonderful um she said you know a lot of people and and i experienced experience this as well. They have these beautiful, beautiful crystalline testimonies of the gospel. They're just cut cut glass with facets that reflect light in so many different ways and cast rainbows onto the wall and they're beautiful and, and perfect. They look perfect. But um, the moment they get a nick in them, the moment something challenges them in a way that doesn't fit with this, this shape they've put the gospel into, it can shatter the whole thing. And she said, you know, I have I have a Tupperware testimony. It, it, <laughs> it, it is stained red with pasta sauce. I don't know where the lid is, but you know, <laughs> it will hold what it needs to hold and you can drive over it with a car. It's not going to change. And oh, I think that's, that's similar to sort of digging that. those roots down. Roots yeah, are in the yeah. dirt. It's not pretty. There are bugs, there are worms, there's right. dirt. Um, but it's in that dirt that we find strength. It's in the nitty gritty, dirty bits of, of finding discipleship and finding faith that make those beautiful parts in the sunshine that much more solid and, and sustainable. Well, and I love the idea that you brought up about the re-germination, 
And that all too often we think, oh, okay, that person's dead, you know, like you were saying. And yet if we have that good soil, you know, we can sprout once more, you know, we can come back, which is so, what a wonderful thing to think about how we can help people re-sprout yeah and and that is isn't that one of the most fun things with a garden or with a plant is when it's (laughs) almost dead and then you somehow by by giving it what it needs it comes back and then it and sometimes you don't even know you're giving it what it needs i know i've definitely in my life found a couple of squash plants i didn't even know were there and then i just see a squash hanging down from a tree with a little vine that's climbed up and it is flourishing even though i had totally forgot it was there so i think i think that happens with people's spiritual vines as well (laughs) and gloriana i really appreciate your description of that wonderful warm ward in mongolia where people were doing their best to make it a place when people who were maybe a little tangential came back felt nourished by that good soil, that we have that responsibility. We know that. And we go through phases. You know, there are phases where we are, we probably need to go fallow. I think maybe I need to go fallow. (laughs) The the, um, um, pandemic was sort of a fallow period for me in some ways. I I did certain things. I think it was for everybody. And it was a time to, to nourish our own soil so that we will have what we need to be able to nurture and nourish others mm-hmm. going forward. And then and and then um I love when the so let's talk a little bit about the thorns, the the seed that falls in among the thorns. Oh yeah. You know, um that is an ongoing and in you know in um in Luke it says um and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. So, um, and we we learn later, you know, the Savior tells us that that the thorns are the um, are the riches and temptations of the world that that can choke out our testimony um, and choke one's faith. I think that it is important for us. I'm talking now as parents, um, to be wary of the thorns in our own children's lives. Oh, definitely. And to, because they are ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, um, it, it is a lot of work, actually, to be aware of the potential places and possibilities. And we want to give our children strength to be able to grow in every environment. But when they are young, it is important to try to fill their turf with so many good things that the thorns aren't so appealing. What do you think about that? I don't know. I, I love I love Jesus. Because <laughs> when I re- read about the thorns, my first, where my brain goes is, yeah, there are a lot of systemic difficulties that make it really difficult for certain people who have come into to situations of no no choice of their own that's just where they landed and, and that can totally choke out a ton of vigor and opportunity and all of these things and it's something to be totally conscious of but I love that when you're reading Christ's explanation it's not he doesn't pinpoint poverty he doesn't pinpoint no. violence he pinpoints the good things that distract us from him, which I think is so, because I don't think the other interpretation isn't relevant, but I think 
Christ is so good at pointing out that, you know, too much of a good thing. Too much of a good thing is, is really dangerous. Thorn. Big exactly. thorn. Maybe yeah. the most dangerous thorn. Yeah, because it, it I think so too. It's very easy to tell yourself you're doing the right thing if everything around you feels like life is easy and life is good. Yeah. Um so I I who was the the apostle who gave that wonderful talk years and years ago about the good things that aren't the best things. And oh, the, good, better, best. Yes. That, that was President Oaks. Oh. President, o- President was, Oaks. No, there was, it was another one. that He may have given one too. He may have been good, better, best. I think better, he gave best. the first good, the, better, good best. better, best. There was another one even before that, I think, okay. that was given by um, one of the apostles who I don't, you know, the, in my early years, it was hard to keep everybody straight, <laughs> you know? I, it's so interesting. But he talked about all the good things in the world. I, because Elder... Um, Oaks talk, I remember that, and it came after this one because right. this one came best. years, years before, you know, when I was, we were watching it in the playroom before Gloriana was born, long time before she was born. And he just talked about all the activities in our life and how we needed to be careful because there were so many good activities and so many fun things to do and worthy things to do that we just needed to be evaluating whether they were contributing to our closeness to the Lord or whether they were ultimately diminishing it. And I thought that was very helpful. Well, it also makes me think of Alma chapter five, one of my favorite chapters in the Book of Mormon, in that it's basically Alma's general conference talk and he's giving it and he asks all those questions. You know, he, he basically, I counted it once and it was like 32 questions that he gives us. And all those questions are for us to, to determine you know, where are we on that scale? But he asked that very specific question about if you felt, you know, the the joy of a changed yeah. heart of being spiritually born again, do you feel so now? Yeah. And I think oftentimes that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we feel those spiritual feelings? Do we feel so now? Even if there's good things all around us, is that helping us with our spiritual growth or not? I, I think that... Um that is the wonderful thing about these parables. It's not that we've arrived, you know, that our seed has grown. We need to nurture it. We need to, and we probably need to plant other seeds. And we do that by, by serving, by helping others, by reading our scriptures, by listening with real intent to conference and to the wisdom that ushers forth, by have, being open to other things, like the 13th of our article of faith kind of openness, to things that help us follow the Savior more closely. Well, and another way to look at this uh, parable, too, is are we the sower or are we the seeds? You know, so if you were to interpret the, the parable as you are the sower, then you have to ask, okay, where am I throwing my seeds? Where are my seeds going? Um, if you were considering yourself as a seed, you also have to ask yourself, well, if I'm thrown, you know, where am I being thrown? <laughs> where, where am I ending up? Yeah. And so I think it's also powerful to look at it from both sides. Yeah. And I think, again, with these parables, you can look at it from from both perspectives within the parable. You can also look at it from, um, you know, is this talking about the church? Is this talking about yourself is this talking about your own you know which spiritual lessons which spiritual seeds that we personally are are 
are receiving are falling falling in rocky ground versus you know prepared ground and and which of those are getting choked out and which of them are flourishing and I think you can always apply them at these many 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 different levels. Well, we're also going to talk about the wheat and the tares. Yeah. And that's that's a pretty powerful parable as well. Uh-huh. And that actually, as I was reading it this time, that is where my mind went. You know, I think oftentimes there is this, um, it's a compelling narrative to have sort of a, a friends and enemies narrative, right? You know, there are the good people and there are the bad people right. and we're the good people and how do we protect ourselves against the bad people? But this one struck me on such a personal level is that each of us has wheat, <laughs> wheat and tares sown in our own souls, right? Yeah, and, and sometimes the only way to resolve that is to continue the work, continue nourishing, nourishing the soil. And that. both of them are going to grow. But eventually, we'll hopefully reach the point where we're able to sort through them and 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 pick out the wheat from the tares in our own lives. Um, I, I love the implications for forgiveness and repentance there, mm-hmm. and the ongoing process that you know that that these aren't. I love that Gloriana that different way of, of parsing this parable. So, can you share the parable just briefly? Yeah, of course. Because I think so that everybody knows what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Yeah. Um, It starts in verse 24 of Matthew 13, and it says, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou sow... Uh, good seed in thy field, and from whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we sh- go and gather them up? And he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." And I think, again, if you look at that from a personal level, sometimes those tears are, are the tools God lives, uh, gives us to learn the lessons we need to grow cl- closer to him. He gives us weakness for a reason. He gives us um, inadequacy for a reason because it helps teach us lessons that we wouldn't be able to learn otherwise. It's such an important lesson for those of us, I don't know if I'm that person, but who punish ourselves too much for our inadequacies, for the things we can't do well, for the things that we always seem to be falling short, even though we really are trying. I think that it's also a great example, I mean, a a great sort of opportunity for when we, let's say, in a family, we live with those who we know we are flawed and they are flawed that calls on us to forgive the tears, right. to not insist that the people around us pull those tears up immediately because they're growing, to nurture the soil, the good soil, to read your scriptures, to read your scriptures, to read your scriptures. Poor Gloriana. I know. She, well, you can tell Gloriana is quite familiar with her scriptures. Oh, definitely. But, but, but nevertheless... It's an ongoing thing. 
that gives us the, you know, I mean, and I am talking as a, as a gardener who sometimes forgets. It says you have to feed them. You know, you have to feed this. Right. Thing. You have to feed. And I'm like, oh, they're getting, you know. No, you have to feed them. If you really want it to grow beautifully, you need to give them the right fertilizers. Right. And we need to fertilize the good things in ourselves. And we need to trust that those we love need time to do that too. So the tears within our those we love and within ourselves, um, ideally and hopefully we will, the good things will grow up so strong that the tears will begin to dwindle. Yeah. And, and how I love the transformation of this parable in this way, Gloriana, because it is a little sad. You're like, if you think of them always as the bad people oh, and the good people, right, right. that the Lord's going to tie them <laughs> yeah. up and... How, you know, no, it's not that simple. But, yeah. but as we seek to nurture within ourselves and those we love and those we know and those we meet, the good, it can grow up and ultimately those tears will be bound up and right. will be burned up in the flames. Those, those flames that like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mishael, Azariah, and, and I couldn't think of the other one. Um, only the things that bound them went up in the flames. We always hear of, hear of those burnings, you know, the burnings, the holy burnings, and sort of like, mm. but the truth is that the things that are pure and golden in us will not burn. Right. But the other things will be dross. It's a purifying. Yes. It's a purifying. I love that. I also want to bring up section 86, of course, in the Doctrine and Covenants, also brings it completely yeah. different. And I think that it's it's interesting to see, just like you were saying, Gloriana, how each you know way of looking at this, the fact that it can be the individual wheat and tares, where whether it can be people around us, it can be family members. But it, you know, in section 86, it becomes a story of history. You know, it becomes an historical parable <laughs> where the, the men that slept are the apostles that died after you know, the Savior and the apostasy, and basically it's a story of the restoration mm -hmm. and what's going to happen as we look forward to the second coming and the missionaries going forth throughout the world, gathering up people from all over the world. And so I, I love thinking about these parables and all these different depths and ways of looking at it. And I do, I love that Christ again, again and again and again returns to this idea that we are growing things we are we are things growing in the world and and there are things that we can't anticipate we don't know where the seed will land we don't know what will be sown in the field you know we don't have total control over those things but um i think on one level it expresses his his love of of the natural world and also his love of us and his 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 charity and understanding that oftentimes these are processes they're mm -hmm. natural processes and we're working within those processes and i i'm gonna sorry i'm gonna pivot also a little bit you know to talk about the mustard seed which comes right after this oh which i love that i love that because <laughs> i don't know when i was taught it in primary um it was always like they gave us this little mustard seed and then they showed us a big beautiful tree probably like a maple or an oak it was not a mustard, <laughs> a tree. A mustard yeah and they're like that's what your faith will grow into but if you look at what a mustard seed grows into it's a bramble it's a yeah. bush it is a wild thing that birds roost in and that's what god talks about he he understands that that faith the kingdom of god in its best iteration isn't going to be neat 
it will be there will be snags there will be we'll grow into each other's branches we'll get tangled up but we'll do it with this sort of desire to grow and to become what god made us to become which is much more than we could have imagined yeah, in the beginning yeah, you know yeah you know i think sometimes i have a lot of friends who have left the church because it's too messy there's too many snags and too many you know i, I don't know they these parables of Christ remind me that that's that's the vision God has for us. It's not a mistake that there are all of these tangles. That's how God made it happen. And and I do think also if you if you look deeper in that, if you go on the molecular level, there are beautiful symmetries. Yes. There, and it does make sense in a profound way. And um, and so I, sorry for taking us off <laughs> off no. our, our our plan, but I do think There's that so much. Um, in this. Oh. The that mustard seed story and, and thinking about what a mustard seed is and what it grows into and how we all grow together um, is something that has made me really happy despite questions and despite, you know, uh, unhappiness or, or discontent I may have within the church. It's, I realize that's kind of what it's supposed to be. <laughs> well, and I love the fact that as we talk about the wheat and the tares, there is this binding yeah. There is this binding together. Yeah. So we we do, as you were talking about, it is messy, but then we come together. And in Section 86, basically that binding becomes the priesthood. Yeah. And we talked last week about covenants and how covenants bind us to God and to Jesus Christ. But also, as you were saying, that community of Christ also binds us together. Yeah. And as we bind together, we become stronger and we're able to help each other and mm -hmm. yes. all those wonderful and we influence well. one another towards we influence one another both by what we do and what we see to to grow in to 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 allow the wheat to grow within us yeah. you know to allow those good things to grow and we are we are taught by by our prophet by our leaders by our friends by our ministering sisters by our by those we help as well, very much, you know, those we minister to, everyone is teaching and and um, and nourishing one yeah. another, <laughs> nourishing and nourishing one each and other. And I love, I love at the beginning of the wheat and the tares. It says, um, "The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which is sowing good seed in his field." It's an empty field at that point, right? Oh, I it love doesn't that. start out, you know. Uh, amber waves of grain. It is an empty field, and that is the kingdom of God. Is that process of growing in to what God wants us to be? Which, I which that. I I don't know, but that seems such a I, and these other brief metaphors that the Lord shares with us and that I love. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. Um, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and um, buyeth that field. I love this funny idea. I know. It's such a funny... Let's go get it. Fun, I, I mean, I, it sort of feeds into what Gloriana was saying, how the Savior must have been such a fantastic conversationalist. People oh, must have loved, definitely. He says these He's funny so things. funny. I mean, He's what a funny guy. thing to say, like a treasure, that he finds the treasure <laughs> hidden in a field, and he's like, he hides it again, and then he right. sells everything else and buys that field because he knows that, <laughs> that treasure there, is there. There's a treasure. And the kingdom of heaven is like an incredible 
pearl. I mean, I'm just going to say, and and when this man who collects pearls has found this incredible pearl of great price, he sells everything else he has just to get that one pearl. To and um. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea and gathereth of every kind, which, which is a little bit what we're talking, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. I love that we aren't talking about people. We are also talking about our own selves right there. But I love this idea, and I will say that over the many, many years, I'm 10 in dog years, so you can figure. <laughs> now, there are new ways of figuring dog years, but traditional dog years. <laughs> anyway, that um, I have come to appreciate. I didn't always understand what this piece of metaphor, parable meant, but that when you really know what the kingdom of heaven is, when you know what it is to have a relationship with the Lord where he hears you and you can hear him and you can feel directed by the spirit, nothing else is important to you anymore. The people you love, you love them because they are gifts. But if they were the most important thing to me, I would be a pretty miserable person, even though I still have many incredible people I love. But two of the people, three of the people, four that we love the very most, in their prime, were taken from us. A baby, a daughter, a husband, little twins. That could bear very heavily on one's ability to feel joy. But when you understand what the kingdom of heaven is, you understand that what matters is that we work together in that path. Oh, that is so beautiful. And actually, that reminds me, too, of these women that go and serve the Savior. I mean, we have this wonderful view of these women. Basically, if we, you know, look, I know, Annette, you wanted to, to Not talk a- for a moment about it's, they're found in Luke 8, 1 through 3. And, and I just love the fact that these women are helping the Savior because they know that this is, you know, the Savior being among them is the pearl great price. It is the, the one that they want to give everything and they to the are, Savior. They are significant enough that through all of these iterations, their names are there Definitely. as women who supported the Savior, who helped him financially and spiritually in different ways. Now, it's interesting that, you know, men, many of them were those who were saved from very serious troubles. Mary Magdalene, they say, out of whom went seven devils. Mary Magdalene was apparently mad before the Savior healed her. Um, And she became this devoted follower who truly supported him in his work and, of course, was blessed to be among the first to see the risen Christ. Well, and others loved. I mean, you can tell as you you hear read her story. Yes. That even though she had had obviously that that past, but was people just people loved. Beloved. Joanna was the wife. I mean, I thought this was very interesting that she was the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. This was Herod Antipas, I think, the one not in Galilee, the Herod in Galilee, because there are several Herods. But she was the wife of the steward of one of the rulers of that area. And she had been healed also of a serious ailment and became a devoted follower 
of the Savior. And she would have had the money and the position to be able to really help Which the they did. They yeah. used their everything they had to help her. And Susanna um, and many others who ministered to him of their substance, it says. So they were, these women were supporting the Savior in many ways. They recognized him. And how wonderful that women recognized him. And I, I just love that, that, that women were always, even, even in these times when women were not treated equally with men, certainly, I mean, we know that, that during all of these periods, but in the Savior's mind, they were extraordinarily important part of his ministry. And, and not just, I, I don't know, but just in those two examples you give of Mary Magdalene and Joanna, it wasn't a, a particular type of woman. It was women across the spectrum. That's right. They right. were working together That's right. to support Christ, which is what we can still do today. <laughs> That's right. And well, they were loved and cherished and yeah, valued. Equally, they yeah. were. They were. You know, I, I'm hoping that we can kind of end our time today with a really significant woman story. And for me, this story is, even though it's a, it's a story, but it's also a parable, I really do think. You know, I think it also has those feelings of a parable. And that, um, so we have a woman, and he says, this is found in Luke 13, starting in verse 11. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. I mean, that's not a short time. And was bowed together. I mean, I'm just thinking of this woman. I'm, and I'm sure, Annette, I, I don't know this. if you feel this way. But <laughs> as you get older, it's like gravity is just, you know, bearing down on you and your back. And you just can't, you are constantly oh, pushing your back I up. I definitely had my, you know, know, and I've had my healing too, which That's I'm very right. grateful for. And so she, but she, you get this feeling that Thanks. she is so bowed down that she's almost... In two. And you know, I've that seen that. I've seen put, that with put people. Together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jesus saw her. He called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But guess what day it was? The Shabbat. <laughs> and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work and in them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath day lose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And I love this ending. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Which is very interesting. You know, it reminds me of when the, the woman who is caught in adultery, you know, or supposedly right. so. That's, and they're getting ready to stone her. And the Savior comes and draws the stone. in the sand. Let, let right. he cast the first stone who is without sin. Right. And to their credit, to their credit, they walk, walk away, away one after another. You have to be appreciative that they recognized that they were, n that they they were, were in the wrong. They were in the wrong. Yeah. 
They and again, that Christ was able to teach in a way that led them to realize that for That's themselves. So All he did was ask questions exactly. that led them yes. to see their own their own hypocrisies, which is um, really valuable, very Socratic. <laughs> so for me, this story kind of has two parables. We all deal with heavy burdens. And so the first one is we have heavy burdens that literally make us feel like we're doubled over. But the other part is that oftentimes we can be the woman, the person looking at the woman and saying, well, she must have done something that caused her to have that heavy burden. You know, we can be the negative person that, that then judges, you know, why she's bent over. Well, she obviously didn't take care of herself well enough, and she obviously didn't have other people to help her. And Or I can't help her because it's the Sabbath. <laughs> right, or I can't because it's the Sabbath. <laughs> But I love this thought from Elder Bednar because he he talked very strongly. I don't know if you remember this story about the the man that wanted a pickup truck. And he wanted a pickup truck so bad, even though, you know, it probably wasn't the best. So he goes one day and he says, Okay, I'm gonna he he bought it and his wife was a little, you know, still questioning. And so he said, Well, look, I am going to go up into the, the woods, it's wintertime, I'm going to go get some wood and show you that I really did need this pickup truck. And so he goes up to the woods, and guess what? He gets stuck in the snow. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I mean, I can just imagine, you know, my wife's going to say, what were you thinking? And so, but then he decides to get to work, and he puts all of this wood, you know, in the back, and lo and behold, having that burden in the back of his pickup truck means that he can finally get out of it. And so he says, you know, Elder Bednar, after telling this great story, says two guiding questions can be helpful as we periodically and prayerfully assess our load. And I thought about that, about our load. Is the load I am carrying producing the spiritual traction that will enable me to press forward with faith in Christ on the straight and narrow path and avoid getting stuck? Or is the load I am carrying creating sufficient spiritual traction so I ultimately can return home to Heavenly Father? And then he goes on and he says, sometimes we mistakenly may believe that happiness is the absence yeah. of a load. But bearing a load is necessary, an essential part of the plan of happiness, because our individual load needs to generate spiritual traction. And I love that. I thought I wanted to to kind of ask both of you, how have you found spiritual traction? And are your loads in the right place? What do you think about bearing these loads? That is such a wonderful question. It reminds me of what we t- spoke about in one of our earlier things about rest. Oh, and definitely. If thou desirest rest, desire not too much. Um, I think Sometimes, though, we do feel so heavily burdened and we ask ourselves or we anticipate that we will be so heavily burdened. You know, we think, how can I do all of this? And I have found sometimes that I get down on my knees and ask Heavenly Father, are each of these things needful? Is it really right for me to be trying to do all of this? Usually, he says, oh, yeah. (laughs) Usually, once in a while, there may be something I can jettison. But usually it's, yes, there's a reason I've asked you to do this and to do that. And and it will help you grow. 
in ways that are important, in ways you want to grow. Like, ah, okay, you know, I'm going to have to learn to do things better than I did them before. I'm going to have to learn to think a little more clearly and to work a little more efficiently. I'm going to have to get rid of things that aren't essential. We talked right. about that once with Christine. Definitely. About, about discerning what are the things we're doing. I remember when I was young, not that young, you know, because by this time you were already born. You know, and sometimes when I was had a moment, I'd be flipping through a magazine, not a magazine, a catalog of clothes, you know. And usually I didn't buy anything, but I'd just look at them, you know. At a certain point, I thought, you've got to stop looking at clothes catalogs. <laughs> they are not helping you accomplish anything. And I haven't for a long time. <laughs> now, of course, it, it's thrust upon <laughs> you by the internet. But but there too, you know, you can, if you don't, they don't send you more. Right. And, and I think that um, this thing, I love this question, Mariana, and there's no question in my mind that our loads and over the, you know, looking back over the years when, when we had many, many, many children and oftentimes extra children who would come to us sure. for help. Um, my husband was a bishop and I had several callings and we also were active in our, and, and we didn't have a lot of resources. It seemed like a lot, but we were committed and we did it. And now as I look back on it, I realize it strengthened our backs. Yes. It was like in the Book of Mormon. Right. When, um, which story is that where the people have all those burdens placed upon Alma. them? In Alma. When, when they're yes. leaving and they're trying to get and back. All to those burdens. And the he people. didn't take away their burdens. No, he didn't. But he made the women stronger yeah. for it. So I do have an, a question no, no. for you, Gloriana. Yeah, okay. I mean, what is your thought about these burdens that we have for spiritual traction? Well, I think, you know. It's, it's all about growing, right? You, going back to these parables and, you know, you have, you have growth spurts. They're painful. You're, you're bringing something new. You're bringing something more That's into this right. world. We're, we're, you know, there's a long road to get back to Heavenly Father. And I think it does go back to that idea of being yoked. Um, and, and you aren't yoked unless you have um, something you're supposed to accomplish right you don't just right. you don't just leave oxen in a field yoked for the heck of it and um i i think that's so important to remember as these loads seem heavy is that it's heavy because we're doing something it's right. heavy because we're accomplishing something yes. with oh, that. I like that. <laughs> I like that. and i love the pain piece a lot of pain a <laughs> lot of pain i mean moms who have babies you know i mean yeah. now i guess you can have an epidural i didn't have epidurals a lot of pain, a lot of pain, and something amazing comes from yeah, it. Yeah. So, to I mean, and of course, they used to be, what is it for people who do these extreme sports? No pain, no gain, you know? Right, um, that's true. But in life, I mean, you can say that in sports, but in life is the real truth, that no pain, no Which gain. Which isn't to say you have, you to, have to be it. kind to yourself and you have to yeah. have, to <laughs> have judgment about, about what, what you can handle and, and what is good, good pain and what is... What is pain that's not going to actually be good for you or the people around you? But all right. the same, I think there is, you know, it's not meant to be easy. Right. <laughs> and, and so I think this is kind of also going with Elder Bednar at the very end. He says, we should be careful to not haul around in our lives so many nice but unnecessary things 
that are distracted and diverted from the things that truly matter most. And sometimes that's an undue burden that we do place on ourselves. Yes. yes. And so I do think that's going back to the good, better, best thing that we were talking, yes. that we need to decide what it is that we need to, what's what's the most necessary to help with that spiritual traction. I have one thought on that, which I just love. So everybody knows Marie Kondo. She is not <laughs> a member. She is not, I mean, not a general authority, but <laughs> but many women and men have looked to her for learning how to need to get out her the, life. Right, to, to get, get out the, all the extra. There are two things I want to say about her because one is that I remember reading I, I picked up before I knew who she was. I was in a in a bookstore and I picked up this book and I started reading. Hmm. I thought I bet she doesn't have twelve children, you know, because she was talking about getting rid of all the unnecessary. And I right. thought a lot of it seems, un- but it's very hard. Then I got to a place in her book that I loved. She said, and I think this is so powerful, that she, you know, had straightened up her life. This is when she was still living at home with her families and with her mom and her brother. And sure. and then she really began being very interested in straightening up their lives. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and she said that she caused a lot of unhappiness in her family, straightening up whether it was her mother's or her brother's lives. And she realized it, you are not called to straighten up other people's messes in right. that way. You have to look at your own. And she said, there always were ways. And of course, this is a good metaphor of this cleansing. She said, there were always more things I could get rid of. Now, the last piece I want to say is that Marie Kondo now has three children. And one of my children just told me that she has now said, being neat isn't the most important oh, I thing. Love it. I love that it. really made me Well, happen. see, now that's a great parable. And yeah. that's a yes. great way for us to end our time together. I just love this idea that we can bring these parables to our own lives and that we can think about this idea of parables in everything that we we see in our lives, but also as we look at the scriptures and see that in our everyday life too. Amen, Sister Kondo. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 